In Luke 18 there, he talked about the power and priority of prayer. And hopefully this week uh, we put it into practice. And so let's read on here in Luke 18. We're going to pick up where Tosin left off in Luke 18 and verse 18. As we continue to study out uh, the Gospel according to Luke. Turn with me there. Luke 18 verse 18 or touch your screen there. Either one. It goes on. Luke uh, kind of changes changes the scene perhaps. We don't really know if this is in the same setting. But it says in Luke 18 verse 18, a certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Jesus goes on in verse 19, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Verse 22, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Verse 23, When he heard this, he became very sad. Because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him and spit on Him. They will flog Him and kill Him. On the third day, He will rise again. Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what He was talking about. And we'll end there. So the scene here in Luke 18 shifts uh, to this ruler, it says. From the Synoptic Gospels, we know uh, He was also young and He was also uh, wealthy. And He comes up to Jesus and, and and He calls Him good teacher in verse 18. And that was not a way you would address a rabbi uh, in this time. Uh, the rabbis were known to, to say only the law is good. And so this man is probably flattering Jesus as he approaches him and calls uh, him good teacher. Uh, and so he, he's not only a flatterer, he's also a bit self-deceived. He, he asked Jesus how he can, what he can do to inherit eternal life. You know, what does he have to do uh, to be saved? Which we know uh, the gospel uh, changed all that. There's nothing we have to do through Jesus to be saved. There's things we have to accept. Um, and Jesus' response in verse 19, He says, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good, He says, except God alone. Um, only God is good, Jesus says. And so, it either means He's just a man, and so you shouldn't be calling me good, or, as we know through the Christian lens, you could only call, call Jesus good because He is God. And I believe the New Testament's made it clear that that's probably what Jesus is referring to when He makes that statement. And then He asked the man, you know, the, what we might call a commandments test. He lists about half of the Ten Commandments. And the man in his own mind, he's, he, he's kept all those He says since he was a boy, right? And then in verse 22, you know, Jesus says something that must have just rocked His world. Because we know even the disciples that rocked their world afterwards. He tells the man, well, there's still one thing you haven't done. If you want to inherit eternal life, He says, sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. And then if you want, you can come follow Me. 
some tough love and truth from Jesus there uh, from this wealthy man. And of course, he has a sad response to it. And the disciples and Peter afterwards, they're even starting to doubt. Uh, and so it's just it's just this intense scene. And 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 Jesus, you know, he pulls he pulls away the falsehoods. He pulls away the pretenses. He he calls us to truth. And he definitely challenges us in, in regards to truth with with worldly things like money. And it's funny, as time goes on, I think Jesus' words and His truths, they get more and more relevant. Because we live in a global economy where, where money is just is something that everyone thinks about. You, If you're rich, you're thinking about how to get more of it or keep it. If you're poor, you're thinking about how to get more of it. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. We're all thinking about money. Money, in many ways, has become a little God, if you will, with a lowercase g there. Uh, which leads to my first point, God and gods. First point from this text here is God and gods. And clearly there's a distinction there between the capital G and the lowercase g, if you know what I mean. You know, Jesus as He does here, He helps us weigh what really matters. He calls this this ruler away from temporary riches to eternal riches, right? By telling him to forsake all that he owned, give it to the poor, and then he could follow Jesus. And so it's it's this choice that he has to make, this fork in the road. Here's the true God, which is Jesus Himself in the flesh at this point. You can follow after Him, or you can hang on to your wealth and go a different way. It's one or the other. A true God versus the false gods of money. You know, there's one God according to the Bible, uh, and because He is in and behind all that is good, we can make many of the good things that, that He created or His creation has created, such as money, that's what money is, right? We can make those things into little gods. We can, and what I mean by that is, is maybe we don't, maybe you don't get out your, you know, your wallet and, and bat onto it and pray to it, but, but we can live in such a way with money that it really is a God. That, that it gets, it gets our primary allegiance. It gets, it, it gets our deepest emotions. You know, when was the last time you were, you, you, you were distraught over your finances or stressed out or worried? It may have just been a few minutes ago, right? You know, it, it's easy to do that. And there are many quote-unquote gods like that in this life today. And as a matter of fact, we live in a time where we've mastered life in many ways. We're living the longest we've ever lived. Uh, we're, we're living the wealthiest we've ever lived. And so there are so many things in the culture today that we can treat like, like, like a little God. That we can treat in this way this man was treating his wealth. It doesn't just have to be money. It could be many other things. And of course, money is a dangerous one. The Bible warns us against wealth and how dangerous it is to our souls. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, Paul writes, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And he says, Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says, You can love God and you can worship Him and He can be the true God. And if you love money too much, it can pull you away from God. That's how powerful it can be. So money and the things that, that come with it. Uh, not in and of themselves, uh, it, you know, it, it's that stuff in our heart. The love of this is what kills the soul. It's not the money itself, it's the love of it. It's treating it as a little God in our life. And there are many, many gods we misuse, many gods we, you know, we misuse and abuse, you know, in this day. Uh, like I said, I, you know, we, we live like kings today. The average person in the UK, Today lives like a king would have lived, you know, just 500 years ago in the UK. You understand what I'm saying? We we live very well, and there are many little gods uh, that are going to tempt us to worship them every single day. I, I think about some of the big ones in culture. I think about relationships. You know, perhaps the greatest of, of these little gods is just the worship of self. 
It's not a relationship with someone else. It's a relationship with me, myself, and I. I love me and I'm all about me. And then, and then, I, and then social media even gives you now like a platform. You can become like a celebrity in your own mind. You know, posting about your great life and all the things you're doing and how awesome you are and all the things you want to share with people and all. You know, and it just feeds that love of self. Which is maybe one of the largest gods that we have to fight to worship the true God today. And amen, it can, it can be a man, it can be a woman. You know, it can be a close relationship where you, you, you're more worried about what they think than you are about what God thinks. And they start to become that little God in your life. And it can come out in all kinds of distorted ways. Uh, you know, I think about even good things like family. I mean, praise God for family. Praise God for marriage. Praise God for children. But we can be so consumed with our family, so consumed with our marriage, that, that we're, we're quick to push God out when push comes to shove because we want what we want in our family. And the family is not meant to lord over us, but to lead us to the Lord. Right? It's meant to lead us to the Lord. You know, I think about uh, you know education. You know, it... it it never ceases to amaze me. I've, I've served now in the ministry in the U.S. and Australia and now in the U.K. When, when kids in, in, in secondary school approach these exams that they have to pass to get into certain universities, it's like the world's about to end. It's like the sky could fall at any minute. Panic, you know, freak out, red alert, oh no, you know, it's like they can't come to church, they can't do anything, they've got to study. And sometimes the parents are worse than the kids. And sometimes the parents actually make the kids that way because we're so consumed with our, you know, our little Billy and our little Betty. That's very American, sorry. You know, getting that perfect, that perfect mark, going to that perfect school so they can make all that money. But where are we going? What are we so consumed with? What are we teaching our children if we get so consumed with these worldly systems? And I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I think our kids should do their best and be their best in whatever they're doing, but we've got to be really careful. These become little gods in our lives. And this stuff is creeping into the church all the time. It's not just all you out there in the world. Those people out in the world, they, they really don't get it. No, we, we sometimes don't get it. You know, it could be sport. It could be just success in general. You know, it, it doesn't even matter. I never forget um, when I was in Sydney, a young man named Daniel Gouda. This kid was... I started discipling him. I was working with the teens. He was about 17 and he was on track to make the Olympics for Australia in badminton. I mean, he could just he could just hit that shuttlecock all around. You know, he was he was good at badminton, and uh, and he was traveling all around Oceania. You know, he had to compete a certain number of tournaments to actually get qualified for the Olympics, and he was on track. I mean, he was going to be qualified for the Olympics and represent Australia. But the more he did that as a as a young disciple, the more he started to drift from God. And the more he started to struggle with the world, and, and he just felt so distant from God. And he came to his own conclusion. On his own. His parents didn't challenge him. It wasn't me or anybody else. We, we encouraged him to really think, is this worth it? We didn't have some of those conversations. But he had his own. He said, you know what? It's just not worth it. I'm struggling spiritually to, to, to get a gold medal. What, what is that going to get me in the end? You know, the, the gold medal or the golden streets of heaven? Which would you rather have? You know what I'm saying? And Daniel, he quit it. He quit it. And now he's still kind of training. Maybe later on he'll go back into it. But, but man, a 17-year-old man could get that and make that decision. What about us? What about us? Do we have an understanding of those little gods that creep into our lives and can wreak so much damage if we're not careful? And even just the little god of comfort. You know, we're relocating right now you know, our, our, into some temporary housing. We've moved out of our house. We're renting into some temporary housing and sold our car. And, and it's just amazing. The little comforts in life. All of a sudden, you don't have the, the coffee maker in the morning. You know, you don't have the, the car to go down the street. And, and, and when you move, you, all those comforts get torn away from you. 
And you just you realize how, how important they are sometimes to you. And so I, I've been convicted by this too. You know, think about how comfort can just even be a little God that rears its ugly head in my life. There are many little gods in this life. We could go on and on, but Jesus can help us find the one true God. And that's what he calls this man to. In verse 22, you know, in verse 22, he simply calls this man to, to follow him. To, 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 to not let his wealth be the thing that he worships more than Jesus himself. And in verse 23, of course, the man that says he becomes sad. He becomes sad. You know, like this ruler, when Jesus calls you and I to forsake these little gods for the true God, we can have one of two responses usually. We can, we can be sad or we can be glad. And the Christian is, is glad at the end of the day, and that's part of becoming a Christian, is, is having a joy in giving up something for God. Um, but even once we become a Christian, that's still a battle to stay glad, to make those decisions, to make those, those sacrifices in our lives. And so after this man is sad, Jesus then challenges him. Jesus doesn't stop. In verse 24, he looks at him and says to him, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Instead, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about? Well, you know, it, he's saying it's something very difficult. It can be done, but it's very difficult, and, and the, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There was a there was a small gate known as the Needle's Eye in, Jer- in Jerusalem to enter into the city, and it was about the size of a, of, a, of, a, of a man. You could just get through it. So it'd be, you know, he says it, it's it's like trying to get a camel, a large animal, through that. Through that gate. Uh, the other possibility is interesting in the Greek there. Uh, the, the word for camel and the word for a tow line of a ship are just one vowel different. It's, it's, uh, the Greek for, uh, for camel is, is, is it's camelos with an E. The Greek for that, that, that tow line which is very thick is camelos with an I. And so possibly it's just a scribal error and he was talking about a ship we don't, we don't really know. Uh, but either way it's saying it's really difficult. To, to, to have all this money because it's, it's, so, it's so easy to lose sight of what really matters when you have all that money. So that's why Jesus encourages us, if we have a lot of money, to give it away as much as you possibly can. And amen, this is the only time He challenges someone to give it all away. It must have been that, that, that entrenched in His life that he, he challenged this man to give it all away. You know, if you're not a Christian today, you know, I want you to think about what are the little gods in your life? Because we, we, we are made to worship something. We all worship something. Whether we believe in God or not, you are worshiping something. What is that? That would be your little God. That would be your little God. And, and perhaps that's the very thing that you're hanging on to that's keeping you from really coming to find the true God. Is that little God in your life? And would you be willing to forsake that and reject that and come to Jesus and see if He's offering you something more? But if you're anything like me, before I became a Christian, you have to choose to really reject that first before you can really find that, that real relationship with God. But I would encourage you to be willing to take that risk. If Jesus really is who He said He was, it's actually not going to be a risk in the end. It's going to be a reward. He tells this man, what is he going to have if he does that? He's going to have treasure in heaven. He's going to have treasure in heaven. And if you are a Christian, the Bible calls us to, to be living sacrifices. The sacrifices I made yesterday don't matter. What matters is the sacrifice I'm going to make today and tomorrow. And you know, as the saying goes, the living sacrifice tends to wiggle off the altar. We've got to keep getting back onto that altar every day as Christians. As a Christian, where are you in danger of making God's call to you sad? Is it contribution? Is it service? Is it sacrifice? Is it loving the lost, serving the poor? You know, and, and, and whenever God calls you to something, you kind of feel that, uh, yeah, okay, 
but wherever God calls you and you feel that, that follow that. Dig into that. Think about that. Pray about that. That for me is often an indicator of that little God is starting to form in my heart. And I'm thinking that, that you know, giving that up for God is, is, is a loss. When really the Bible says through and through that is always a gain. It's always a gain. And I love this passage in verse 24. It says Jesus looked at him and challenged him, right? In Mark's account it says he looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. And so yeah, God will call us to give up things, but he does it in love. He does it because he wants what's best for our lives. We have to give up something less to gain something far more. That is the way of following Jesus. You know, and this ruler, if you think about it, well, if he gave away all of his, his wealth to the poor, how many people would he have blessed back in that time of such extreme poverty? He could have blessed so many more people. He was just blessing himself, I'm sure. And that's why Jesus challenged him to do just that. And then on top of that, if he did that, what did Jesus say he could do? He says, then you can come follow me. So he's already going to bless a lot of people. Then he gets the blessing of walking with the Son of God and finding true and real life. But again, he had, he, had to, he had to see through his little God to find the true God. And I love Peter's reaction in verse 28. I'm sorry, the disciples in verse 26, they say, who then can be saved? They're like, wait a second. The Jews in Jesus' day, and it's often true even of religion today, that they thought if someone was wealthy, that meant God was with them. And so they were thrown that this guy wouldn't be, he wouldn't be right with God. And then Peter, you know, Peter, Peter cries out, we, we, we have left all we had to follow you. You know, you know again, is it, is it affirmation or panic on Peter's part? We, we don't really know. Maybe he's freaking out, you know. I hope it was affirmation. We're not sure. But Jesus, what does He do? He reassures even His disciples after that. He reassures them in verses 29-30. He says, you know, anyone who's left home, in verse 29, wife, brothers, sisters, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God... Verse 30, will fail, will, will fail to receive many times as much in this age. They, they'll, they'll get all those things. And on top of that, he says, eternal life. And that's the thing I think that encourages me from this passage. Jesus knows it's challenging for us. He knows it was challenging to this guy. And he knows it's challenging to his disciples to hear it. And 2,000 years later, as we read the words, it's still challenging. Imagine if, I, I don't know anyone here who's super wealthy, but imagine if, if you got the call today or I got the call to, to give up everything we have. Sell it all and give it to the poor. Feel that for a second. That's, that's a challenging idea. And Jesus knows that, but He reminds us you know, of, of the value of sacrificing things for God. Forsaking those little gods for the true God has greater, far greater value. You know, I think about, you know, He says, if you leave homes, He says, you'll, you'll have many more. You'll have many more in this life if you leave homes for God. You know, we, uh, my family, we made a, a very bittersweet decision uh, about a month ago to accept a position in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I think most of us know that, but if you don't know that, well, now you know. Um, <laughs> it was very bittersweet. We, we love this church. Uh, it, it made it very difficult, uh, our love for you guys, to, to, to make that decision. Uh, but, but we do believe that, you know, that that's God's will for us at this point. And we'll be leading a region um, in the Phoenix, Arizona church. And, and, and I share that with you because our journey, my family, we've, we've lived in... Once we move to Phoenix, we'll have lived in seven houses um, in four countries, three continents, in six years. And so we've just been all over the world pretty much uh, now as a family, um, full circle. But it's just amazing how we've just followed home in Birmingham. I got a funny accent, way more funny than the Brummies, but I, I feel right at home. I feel right at home here because of, because of the, the kingdom of God. 
right? You know, you, you, can, you can move around the world and, and, and because of the kingdom of God, you, you have a home because it's not about a house. It, it's, about, it's about family. And, and my, my family is eternally grateful to you guys. You guys have been family to us. Um, and I'm going to try to keep the emotions back. Um, you know, we, we, we even, we, we moved out of our house and we, 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 you know, the Dowds, you know, you know they let, they're crazy. They let six of us come into their house for a few days, you know, just because we're just, we're family. Who does that? You know, who does that? Um, you know, it says, you know, if, if you, if you, you know, if you if you are willing to set aside wife and kids for the gospel, it says, God will bless you. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I don't believe he means that a preacher should neglect his wife or his kids. Uh, I don't believe the Bible teaches that at all. Um, but sometimes to, to seek God and put him first, we have to put relationships aside. Uh, we have to make sacrifices in our relationships. But even then, you know, I've learned the more I serve Jesus, the better husband I'm going to be. The more I serve Jesus, the better father I'm going to be. And Jesus has, has, has trained me so much uh, through the kingdom to be a better husband and a better father. And that's still a, a work in progress. Amen. Pray for me. Um, you know, and, and it says, if you ever leave brothers, sisters, parents, you know, I, I, I miss my family. They're all back in the States. I've been away now for six years from the U.S. And Mandy misses her family back in the South Pacific. But, but like I said, you know, you guys have become family to us, right? Um, and that's been that way everywhere I've gone. Um, and he says in verse 30, he says, He'll repay you many times as much as you gave up. That's what he says. Many more times than what you give up, he will give you in the end. But, but it's spiritual treasure. He's not, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a cash transaction here he's talking about. It's spiritual treasure. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm just sharing from my perspective of my life. But you know, if you're a Christian, exactly, exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, when, when, that Jesus' words, they really become true. But you've got to be willing to follow them right before you can even discover that. Oh yeah, and then on top of that, at the end of it, an eternal life. As if it wasn't good already, if it wasn't enough, and then on top of that, he throws in eternal life. And the Bible's picture of eternal life is not, you know, you know, where some, you know, angel on a cloud strumming on a harp, you know, singing songs. It's, it's, it's all of this life as we want it to be forever. It, it's, it's the perfect earth. It's, the, it's, it's, it's heaven and earth coming together in one. It's, it's, it's going back to the Garden of Eden. Paradise. And you get that forever. And so yeah, you're going to have to forsake some things in this world. Some pleasures, some riches to, to, to have that one day. But, but do you really think, after one second in heaven, you're going to be going, oh man! I wish I hadn't sacrificed that money. After one second in heaven, oh man, I wish I hadn't, hadn't stayed single. No way! No way! You know, Sharon right now. Oh man. Think about it. Yeah. Yeah. She... She's happy. She's good. She, she's in a much better place. She's not missing anything here. She's missing us, but she's not missing anything here. You know. You understand what I'm saying? She, she she's with God. She, she, she's in that holy and happy place. God and gods. Which am I choosing? The result of these choices will bring immense sadness or gladness in this life and the next. So God and gods, and second, finally here, cross and crowns. Cross and crowns. Back to the text here in verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside after this and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, and spit on Him. They will flog Him and kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise again. The disciples did not understand, Luke notes, any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. 
And they did not know he wa- what, what he was talking about. That's reassuring to me as a preacher because often people are like, what, what is he talking about? I, it even happened to Jesus, amen. Um, he was a little better at it than me though, for sure. Um, and so it's a really interesting transition from this, this ruler and, and, and what happens with him and the disciples to then Jesus pulls aside his disciples and he tells them, I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And he basically predicts the passion, right? He's going to be arrested. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be killed. And then he predicts his resurrection. And it's interesting, the gospel has this account three times in it, between the synoptics. Three times Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to raise again on the third day. And you know, there are two kinds of courage I learned from this passage. There's, there's one courage where danger comes and you just respond to it. You didn't know it was coming, it comes and you respond to it courageously. But the other kind of courage that Jesus has here is even more inspiring. It's knowing the danger is already there and you walk into it anyway. And that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He knows what's coming. And yet He walks into Jerusalem and surrenders Himself so that we could be saved. Jesus is so inspiring in so many ways. He, he emulates true courage. And I, and I love this about Jesus. He's just called a man to sell everything. And He calls you know, all who follow Him to an undying loyalty right throughout, throughout the Scriptures. But He Himself will do just that. He will surrender His entire life so that He can give us all that He calls us to. Jesus never calls us to something He Himself has not done in His life. In verse 34, you know, you know it says the apostles, they don't, get, they don't get what He's saying you know, at this time. And why is that? Well, they probably had bought into the notion of the, of the picture that was out there in first century uh, Judaism of the, what the Messiah would do. The Messiah would come in and be like David. Right, and he would kick out the Romans, and he would be, you know, he would restore, you know, uh, you know, Israel as a theocracy, uh, if you will. And so, so the disciples are probably thinking, well, how, how would he get that crown through a cross? How would he get that crown through a cross? And that's what I believe Luke is noting there uh, in verse thirty-four. Uh, William Barclay speaks uh, of of there and 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 our and our ease of not getting what God is saying uh, when he says this. He says, there, "Here is a great warning to every listener." The human mind has a way of listening only to what it wants to hear. There are none so blind as those who refuse to see. There is a kind of wishful thinking which believes the unpleasant truth cannot really be true and that the thing it does not want to happen cannot happen. We must constantly struggle against the tendency to hear only what we want to hear. So Jesus is bringing this truth. It's very clear, but they they don't get it because they don't want to at this time, the disciples. Um, and amen, there's good news for us who are spiritually inept and dumb, as we can eventually get it. And the, the apostles, they do. They do, right? Uh, in Luke 24, Jesus is now resurrected. He has several resurrection interactions with the disciples, and they're still kind of not really getting it. Um, eventually they have the aha moment, and this is it. In Luke 24, in verse 44, Jesus is speaking, He says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. And he's referring back to even this passage. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told, he told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Luke 24, verses 44 to 48. And so, so their witness eventually... It brings that truth to light in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem and it's forever changed the world. So eventually the apostles, they do get it. They totally get uh, you know, what Jesus is saying about His life and what He's going to do and how He's going to deliver us through His death 
and resurrection. And so it's very clear, you know, uh, with the Apostles' testimony uh, that we, we can get this truth. We can understand that, that, that God will become a man, die for us, and, and, and raise again to save us. We, we can understand that truth. And the Apostles, they're, great, they're a great testimony to the power of what Jesus says about Himself and the power of what Jesus did. Because the Apostles heard Jesus say He was going to die and resurrect over and over, although they didn't always understand it. Then they literally saw Him because that was a qualification of an apostle. They saw him as the resurrected Christ, right? And, and so they were in a unique position, and then they wrote it down and proclaimed it. And that's what we have today in the, in the Gospel writings. We have the proclamation of this Christ, you know, dying and resurrecting from the grave. And you, and you might die for something you thought was true, or you believe was true, but you wouldn't die for something you know was a lie. Yeah. And the apostles, they died for this truth. That this man, Jesus, wasn't just a man. He was, he was God Himself, the Messiah. And that he didn't just die on the cross, he rose from the grave on the third day. And so there's a great uh, reminder of the power of the gospel here and how we can believe it if we don't believe it today. Um, but with Jesus, uh, really the reminder here is that, is that there was no crown without a cross. For Jesus that was true, and if we're following Jesus today, that's true for us too. There can be no crown for us without a cross. Jesus, he calls his disciples to that, right? One of his fundamental teachings in Luke 9, 23-24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. You know, do, do we get this? And if so, are we living this out? If you call yourself a Christian today, do you get this? And if so, are you living it out? God wants to give us all a crown in this life and the next, but it'll only come as we carry our cross. As it says there, daily. Not just Sunday morning, right? But daily. You know, let's not be fooled and try to find another way. And I think probably, probably the, the, the worst thing that's come out of Christianity in the history of Christianity is just this. People who want to minimize the cross. People who want to find a way around it and call themselves a Christian. Because they turn into hypocrites. They turn into people who say one thing and do another when they don't carry their cross. And it's turned a lot of people away from Christianity. It's turned a lot of people away from the truth that Jesus teaches. Instead of a cross and a crown, they want, they want cake and a crown. You know, they want to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak. And that's not the Christianity the Bible teaches. That's a Christianity that has destroyed a lot of the truth that is out there. And, and, and as disciples of Jesus, we, we know better than that. But it, are you and I in our lives looking for just that? Yeah. Ah, just yeah, amen. The cross, ah, it's tough. Let me kind of let me kind of get around that. I don't really know about. Let me just let me see if I can find a, some some medium ground here, somewhere in between. No, there is no in between. Jesus says we got to carry our cross daily, or we cannot be His disciple. Cake and crown Christianity, rather than cross and crown Christianity. We lose our crosses. We lose Jesus. We lose our crosses, we lose Jesus. Are we in danger of trying to change the way of following Jesus as a church? Jesus calls us, we must follow. We must carry that cross. We will, we will not regret that in the end. It may be hard, but we will not regret that in the end. And so just a couple points here as we wrap up here. God and God's cross and crowns. I believe God is calling all of us today through Jesus' words to choose the truest and best life. To do that, we must forsake these little fake gods over and over for the one true God. 
And we must carry our crosses so we might receive our crowns. Let's, let's, let's be those kinds of Christians in the Birmingham church. Let's proclaim this message to this city. It, it, it will continue to change us. It will continue to change this city. And the Birmingham Church of Christ said, Amen. Amen.